Really, when I think of all of this church that we are and all of the things that we as the church do, I kind of have the sense that uh, almost naturally in me, I don't want to make up who we are and what we do. I don't really um, feel like we should, as a church family, should be guessing, um, trying a few things, then trying a few other things, and then trying a few other things. I don't want to guess who we are and what we've been designed to do because I already know that right in the Bible, God has described who His people are, and as the local church, what are His people supposed to be doing? So we can read about it and we can embody it because God has given us everything that we need pertaining to our lives and living godly lives. He's given it to us. We find it right there in the Scripture and He's empowered us to, to, um, to live it out together. We are looking at the book of Acts today. And by the way, I hope, I mean, this would be so helpful for you. This would be so helpful. If you had room in your routine in terms of your own grow on your own, it would be so helpful if you read along the book of Acts during the week. Um, We don't have time to read all of it together. I'm going to cover a lot of Acts chapter 2 today, but this would actually be so much more clear to you and so much more meaningful if you were hearing Acts chapter 2 again after you've already read it on your own. So, um, you'll do that? Cool. Who's willing to answer for everybody? All right, all right. So, that's that's the answer. That'll help you digest some things. And really, what we discover, if we kind of look at the book of Acts as a big picture, it really does answer some important questions. And one of the questions that the book of Acts answers is, why are we here today? Not necessarily we as human beings, but why are we the church here today? Why are we gathering? What are we supposed to be accomplishing, and how is God? And what we see is the Holy Spirit, through the explosive work, uh, has expanded God's kingdom all the way from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then moved into the ends of the earth, and we are the ends of the earth in some way. Uh, we aren't, by that I mean we're not Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but we are, we are what the explosiveness of the Holy Spirit has generated and created uh, right out of Jerusalem so many centuries ago, and we now are uh, a part of God's kingdom. The book of Acts also answers the question, what are we supposed to be doing? In one way, it answers the question this way, we're supposed to be living as witnesses in our end of the world in our corner of the world, or I like to say in our circles, who God's brought to us in terms of our own uh, lives. And it also answers the question, how are we supposed to do it? How are we supposed to do what it is that God has created His church to do? And of course, the Holy Spirit, uh, the book of Acts shows us how believers who make up the church are empowered by the Spirit. We're not supposed to do it on our own power. We're supposed to do it by the power of the Spirit. Um, So, we look at what God has done in the book of Acts, and today we'll see this, that God ignited powerfully with this word um, dynamite, dunamis, this explosive power of the Holy Spirit, ignited a thriving local church. And up until that point, there had not been a thriving local church family. And He did so, God Himself did so with the presence and the preaching and the people of His Spirit. That's how he launched it, and that's how he brought it onto the scene. Now, where are we? When we get to Acts chapter 2, where are we? What got us there? Well, uh, Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead. He had uh, been appearing over and over and over again. He had been appearing after his death, before his ascension, and before he finally ascended to heaven to kind of be where he Uh, was going to take his rightful place in in, in authority. Before he did that, he told his disciples, it's not over, it's kind of just beginning, and I don't want you to do anything until you get together because I am going to send to you the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said to them, it's better that I leave because when I leave, then you can receive the Spirit. And so Jesus sends this group of people, about 120 people, up, uh, find their way up into this upper room, and uh, they have gathered there waiting for the Holy Spirit whom Jesus had already promised to send to them, and there they are waiting. Can you, 
Every, every now and then I kind of get a glimpse of what that must have been like. You know, if you're sensitive to being made a fool of, you could kind of be like standing there or, or just think about what it feels like to stand in line that isn't moving. And you kind of start thinking, am I the fool? Should I keep waiting? What is this really going to happen? And so all these uh, disciples, these followers are in this room. And Acts chapter 2 describes the fulfillment of the promise. Acts chapter 2 kind of documents uh, um, Luke who is the author, he documents this experience where the fulfillment of the promise right there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and empowers them to do the mission that he's commissioned them to do. And we see that right in Acts chapter 2. So the book of Acts follows Jesus' followers. It's the work of Jesus through Jesus' followers. And it follows them as they go into the world to show and share the good news of the gospel which set people free from having to achieve and perform the law perfectly. Jesus fulfills it, accomplishes it for them. The good news is they're made right with God through faith and not through their religious performance and also to expand His new kingdom. So um, one way to say it is this, that the book of Acts follows Jesus' followers very, very specifically who are given the power of the Spirit. And they are tasked, this is the task, to go show and share who Jesus is, your Jesus story, your Jesus experience, and expand God's kingdom to the entire world, right? Can you imagine them saying like, wait, run that by me again. Did you say the whole world or the whole block? You're talking about the whole neighborhood? or Because I thought you said the whole world. There's no way you could mean the whole world, so maybe you mean the whole city. And we see that what they discovered was that they needed a power way beyond themselves to launch what became the international or the global multi-ethnic church that was kind of initiated and ignited by the work of the Spirit. So the book of Acts helps us understand this question. What should a thriving Christian church be like? And I mentioned to you earlier, I kind of don't want to make it up. I don't have enough confidence in myself um, to really decide what makes up a thriving church. And also, it's cultural, right? There's so many things that are cultural that if you were to answer this question without the Bible, without the book of Acts, you just start giving cultural answers. And in our case, you might have uh, a church devote itself specifically to making sure that if the church is going to thrive, it has to play the most popular Christian worship music. A church may decide that um, in order to thrive, it has to serve, I think this is kind of true, serve everyone's favorite coffee and treats. I mean, it's kind of true, right? Let's not take that off the table. Maybe it'll turn up in the book of Acts. I'm looking for it. Um, we also, we also might discover that a church that's trying to plan and program for itself to thrive, they may devote themselves to producing a very trendy and a very engaging stage show. And you do that stage show well enough and it attracts a crowd and it feels like thriving for people who are leading and participating in that church. Also, there's a lot of pressure in the American suburban culture to provide every possible kids program that anybody could ever want. Or especially to make sure that after people leave the gathering on Sunday morning, you've helped everybody feel good or feel better, right? I came in feeling this way, but when I left, I felt that way. It was such a lift emotionally, and that could indicate to some that that is what a thriving church is. Well... Again, I think I have some really, really good news. We don't have to make it up. Some of those things help in the context of whatever culture you're in, but they don't define a thriving church. Isn't it true that there are churches that do all of that and they do it 10 out of 10 and it is loaded with immorality and corruption and pride and all kinds of other terrible wickedness that's going on among the people? The church isn't thriving, it just looks like it's thriving because they're culturally pushing all the right buttons. So the book of Acts describes the thriving church. And let's start with what's happening among the people. Well, a thriving church, according to the book of Acts, chapter 2, has spirit-filled believers. 
And here's how Luke records this in the book of Acts. Let's take a look at this together. What, is, what does this mean, spirit-filled believer? Um, this doesn't mean it's a particular denomination. It doesn't mean it's a particular tradition. Instead, we get a better look here. Acts chapter 2, starting right at verses 1. We'll go all, all the way to 6 together. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. This is that upper room, right? Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. So, um, let me preempt where we're going here with this story in Exodus. God's people, the Hebrew people, they had been delivered from slavery. They were in bondage to Egypt, and God, you remember the ten plagues? God intervened, and He somehow miraculously sets them free from Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened. And Pharaoh finally says, all right, you're out. Just leave. Leave fast before I change my mind. And so the Israelites, uh, um, the Hebrew people, through this miraculous intervention, they start their journey towards what the Scriptures describe was set aside for them called, some of you know this, the Promised Land. So they go on this journey. They end up in a wilderness. But in Exodus, we see that they had built a tabernacle and something special was happening among the people of God. And that is this, that the people of God who were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they had experienced the fire of God's glory that was showing up in a cloud that was resting on the tabernacle. And every time that cloud moved up, they followed it to the next location that God led them through this cloud. Well, the glory of God was in the cloud in the form of a fire. And they would consider that particular cloud the presence of God. The presence of God now demonstrated in a fire, and that night fire glowed inside the cloud, and it did so so the whole family of Israel could see it. Bam, there he is. Presence of God. Represented by the fire. And this continued through their whole journey. Now, um, I just wanted to preempt you because there's a callback coming in the book of Acts. And this little reach back into their history is going to be so important to read. Then, after this, what sounded like a, 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 what was like a rushing mighty wind, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other language, languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability, then what looked like flames, right? Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire. So here we are now on the day of Pentecost, and we see vividly this kind of callback to the Old Testament that God's presence in the form of fire is now manifesting Himself not on or in a tabernacle, not on or in a temple, but on and in His own people, His own worshipers, now containing the presence of God represented by these tongues of fire. And this is where we see what becomes what Jesus describes as the new temple the temple of the Holy Spirit who is His own worshipers, His own human being followers that are now filled with His presence. And what do we know then? We know that that means that wherever believers are gathered together, God is with them because God is present among, with this Holy Spirit, fire in His own people, in His own real believers. And so um, that means that the presence of God, uh, the power of God, is no longer confined and restrained to a temple building. You no longer, to meet with God and to be a part and to experience His presence, you don't have to go somewhere and walk in the doors and make yourself ceremonially clean. That means that God has opted and chosen to dwell in and among His own people. We no longer confined to looking for and searching for God in a sanctuary. We're no longer confined and restricted to having to find God in a church building. And this is new here in the book of Acts. This is different here. This is, this is turning their, um, 
uh, we'll call it like protocols or their, uh, um, their routines and their religious worship is getting turned upside down because they're no longer going to somewhere. God himself has come to them and filled them with this Holy Spirit fire. Does that make sense? It's a change. It's a, it's, this is how it's going to be. Uh, this is going to how it's, uh, how it's going to change everything and reach the world. So who's experiencing this new presence of God? Who's experiencing it? Is it just the disciples? Is it literally just the apostles and only 120 other people? Who's experiencing it? Well, we see it here in the book of Acts. At that time, there was devout Jews who had come because of Pentecost from every nation. So all these nations who have devout Jews have made their way to um, Jerusalem for Pentecost. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone comes running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Their own languages being spoken by people who didn't speak their language. Well, what did they say? What were they saying in these foreign languages that um, nationals from out of town and out of country, what did they what did they hear? Here's what they said. We all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. So they are testifying of all the wonderful things that they had experienced that God had done. And it was coming through this fire that filled them and through these foreign languages that they were speaking. And they stood there amazed and they were perplexed. And they said, what could this mean? And they started asking each other, this has got to mean something. What could this possibly mean that we're hearing in our own language all the great things that God had done, right? We had come from our home country. We come all the way here to Jerusalem to, to have this uh, celebration festival, and now we're hearing something that we didn't really expect. And um, so do you know what the explanation was that they started giving each other? Does anyone know what the explanation was? Duh, they're drunk. This is why this is happening. It's not hard to figure out. Nobody does this unless they're drunk. And then actually, um, one of the, this is really funny because at some point, uh, you read the story yourself, you'll see somebody refers to how they can't be drunk because it's too early in the morning. Isn't that funny? They didn't say like, they can't be drunk because these people don't ever get drunk. They just say, no, <laughs> when they get drunk, it's later. It's never this early in the morning. That's got to be pretty wild. So, but, but here's what happens. After they said, well, this is happening because they're drunk, Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening here. Please, let's not get this wrong. Instead, what's happening here is something far more important. And he starts to address the fellow Jews and the residents of Jerusalem. And he says, make, make no mistake about this. There is nobody here who is drunk, as you are assuming. Instead, this, what you are now seeing has been predicted. This has been prophesied. We are now living history after God Himself had said this was going to happen. And we see that Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, and he says, it's, Joel the prophet said that the Spirit would be poured out. And after the Spirit would be poured out, and then he gives all these things that are going to happen, and they're experiencing it. That history was being made right when this experience, right when this Holy Spirit fire had been poured out. And he said, this is what had been predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. When Joel said, God, God said to my people, I will pour, in the future, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. And so look what happens. All of these nations have representatives here. And God, who ignites a thriving local church, starts, this is so incredible, he starts with his scattered people. And he unifies them in the power of the Spirit under the name of Jesus. And, and, and guess what begins to happen over time? That these unified people who were scattered and are now gathered start to go back to their nations. And what do we have? The beginning of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and they're moving out to the ends of the earth after he had brought them together in the power of the Spirit with the power of the Spirit empowering them and also under this new king who is Jesus. And bam, the Spirit of God ignites a thriving local church to begin their movement outward. And these people who are under Jesus are filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God has, uh, um, has filled them and empowered them and, and, and has come alive inside of them and is going to be using and working through them. 
So the, so the church, our church, our church family, as a part of the church, um, the universal church of Christ. By the way, I don't mean universalist. I mean global. I'll say global. Is that easy? That's probably better. The global church of Jesus, no longer confined to the Jews, no longer confined to the Jewish temple, no longer confined to a tabernacle, no longer confined to a Christian building. The explosive power of the Spirit ignited the church in all languages, all cultures, and human beings can be filled with the presence of God. Isn't that pretty wild? We're reading history in the book of Acts. How did it happen? What did God intend? And it also means this. This is, this is important. Thriving churches. Um, so again, now, now I'm going to share my opinion with you. Because of this, I've, I've kind of shaped this opinion that we don't and probably shouldn't, I understand, but we shouldn't call ourselves adherents to the church. We probably shouldn't call ourselves congregants. We probably shouldn't call ourselves members. We probably shouldn't call ourselves, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we probably should not be calling ourselves. Instead, we are worshipers. We are believers. This is a word that will never catch, but we are belongers. We belong to God because we're joined with Jesus and full of the Spirit, full of, full of God's Spirit. We um, are disciples. It also means that the church body is not made up of Gnostics who are just collecting intellectual information. Isn't that true? We're not just people trying to acquire knowledge. We're not just trying to acquire more information to fill our brains, and the more we fill our brains, we kind of feel like we're rising up as the Gnostics would feel like, that they kind of have a higher um, experience than the rest of the, the people. There is not just an intellectual pursuit. That means when we get together, we're not just pursuing higher standards for our morality. That means that when we get together, that we are not just pursuing a higher level of um, or, or let me put it this way, a, a holier set of virtues. It also means that we're not trying to just grow our character. We are not called adherents, attenders, members, and congregants. We are called the people of God who are filled with the power of God. And we represent God everywhere we go because of the way that He's made us. So we don't have to... We can embody that as His people, Spirit-filled people. Now, what is, the, what is the local church that's thriving? What is a thriving local church preaching? What's coming as the main messaging? What's being delivered as the main messaging? What is their teaching focused on? Kids, what is their teaching focused on in small group and Bible study and uh, Sunday morning here in the, um, in the main gathering spaces, in homes when things are happening? What's the main teaching and preaching? Is it morality? Is it judgment? Is it um, justice? What's being preached? And I think we can see it, and it's super clear right in Acts chapter 2, and it's Jesus-focused preaching. This is the second trait of a thriving church that we see God has designed and empowered in the book of Acts. It is the promised death, burial, and resurrection and the transformational power of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. That's the main messaging. Um, Peter steps down. After they said, oh, these people, they're talking in our foreign language, we understand, they're, just, they're, they're, they're talking in our language about all of the wonderful things that God has accomplished, and, these, uh, uh, and then the other people said, well, obviously they're drunk. Well, eventually Peter interrupts, and he says, no, that's not true, this has been promised. And then Peter goes on to say, but God knew that this would happen, and this was a prearranged plan. This is, um, as he's talking to the crowd, and actually the Scripture says he shouted to the crowd. He was shouting to everybody. This is prearranged. That even King David, he said all the way back in the beginning, even King David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. So Peter begins to preach and guess what he's focused on. He's not focused on the law. 
He's not focused on the regulations. He's not focused on uh, morality. He's not focused on character and all of that. The Bible kind of admonishes and exhorts the kind of growth and, and the sanctification of all that. But that's not, where, that's not where Peter's at. That's not what he's focusing on. He actually mentions that even, even King David had projected in the way that he had written and the things that he had said, saying that God would not leave this king among the dead. And David wasn't talking about himself, Peter said. Peter was saying that he is, he is projecting and that he is actually looking into the future and, in fact, that it was Jesus who would not be left among the dead. That, in fact, that it was Jesus that God would not allow his body to rot in the grave. He, he, right from the get-go, Peter starts talking about how this is all about Jesus. Check this out. God raised Jesus from the dead. We're all witnesses of this. We saw it happen. We saw the, the empty tomb. He is now, now he has exalted the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. So this is, this is really helpful for, for anybody who thinks, so where's Jesus? If you've ever had any little ones and you've tried to tell them the story of how they are to be kind of like by faith, how they're supposed to be saved, what do we say to the kids? We say, oh, you just accept them into your heart. And the kids, they're so concrete. They're kind of like, how is that even possible? And it might continue to linger over time, even from childhood, that I know Jesus isn't technically, physically in my heart, but I don't exactly know where He is. Peter's already talking about where Jesus is. Where is He? He has been exalted. He's in the place of highest honor. He is at God's right hand. He's ruling and reigning and will one day return. And we get to see where He is. And... The Father, as He had promised, gave Him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. So, this church, led by Peter, is already preaching Jesus. That Jesus is the central, most important, key figure. He is the hero of God's story and represents so much of God's glory in the way that He is crucified, buried, resurrected, this spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel is a callback, and it's a callback, again, to the fulfillment of all that's been prophesied, the coming of the Spirit, the identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, just as the Father had promised. And where did He promise it? He promised it in uh, Ezekiel, He promised it in Isaiah, and then He quoted it right there in Joel. Here's what Acts chapter 2, start at verse 32, it says, "...so let everyone in Israel know for certain..." that God has made this Jesus. This Jesus came from God to us, whom you crucified. I wonder how that went over, by the way. Right? This Jesus that we're worshiping, who everybody was following, who changed the world. By the way, the, you might forget, you did the crucifying, he says, to be, God made this Jesus to be both Lord and Messiah. So that's the focus. How did they react? Um, later on, we know that Stephen would be stoned for saying stuff like this. By the way, it's, some scholars think that Stephen preached one message, and he was like, oh, for one, martyred after one message. Uh, this isn't how they reacted to Peter's message about Jesus. When Peter says, this Jesus that God had sent... He himself sent us. He's not here now. He's at the right hand of the Father, but God sent him to us. It was prearranged. It was planned. It was prophesied ahead of time. He's the one, and he created him to be both Lord and Messiah, and now you've all uh, uh, crucified him, and keep in mind, that's who he is. How do they react? Check this out. Peter's words pierced their hearts. These hard-hearted religious people who were broken into all kinds of racial division, cultural clashes. All of them hear one message about the one Jesus who is the one Messiah and the one Lord, and all of a sudden their hearts start to feel like there is just ice going through, or, or um, uh, even, a, even a dagger going right through their hearts. Their hearts are pierced. And by the way, I'm curious, how many of you... I know that a lot of us, when we were hearing about Jesus, it was like a frog in the kettle, slow boil, right? How many of you heard a lot about Jesus and then over time you realized you were convinced about who Jesus was, but you weren't at the beginning and you look back now and go, oh, that was a slow boil. How many of you would say it's a slow boil, right? 
How many of you, um, and there's, yet there's others who at some point or other, it's like light on, flip the switch, high voltage, pierced in the heart. Anybody get the pierced in the heart when you heard it thing? Yeah, so that's a good representation here, I think. But these people were um, wildly religious people. And this piercing here was happening. And so after they're pierced in the heart, they asked a good question. And the question they asked is this. So, brothers, what should we do now? Peter just um, put Jesus in front of us, and when the listeners' hearts were pierced, they're asking, so what's next? And this is one of the reasons why when we kind of provide for you on a Sunday, uh, every Sunday for for our message, uh, you'll probably notice that when we get to the end, I'm asking the question after we've heard all that, what now? And it kind of comes from this idea that they hear the truth of who Jesus is, and then there's a natural question, which is not, um, uh, it isn't them saying, that's nice. Oh, I like that. Oh, that was interesting. In, in fact, there's implications for that, right? And they say, what should we do? And Jesus here helps us see that when Jesus is preached in any church or among any of God's people, there is a response that's called for. Peter replied to them, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is helpful because we always know, and this is a great kind of pattern for us to notice, what is the proper response to really grasping who Jesus is? This is a proper response at all times. Repent, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So, um, being baptized in the name of Jesus here means being, um, what's a good word, washed of your selfishness and sin of your ceremonially uncleanness, right? Not living up to God's standard, the stain of sin. And this is what he's saying. We repent, we turn to God, and then God does the baptizing in Jesus in which he takes the blood. Imagine it this way, the blood that Jesus shed, once the angel of death is coming to visit you and separate you from God, that blood has been applied to the doorpost, kind of uh, calling back to Exodus again. And separation and death passes you by. Why? Because we've been baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Then He fills us with the Spirit. He just doesn't leave us there more religious. He fills us with Himself. And so, responding to Jesus, what is that like and what is that for? Well, the not not right response, isn't that a great way to say it for a professional? The not right response? How... Not to respond to Jesus. Here's um, inappropriate, poor, not very adequate responses to Jesus. To hear, to see, and to kind of start to understand Jesus, and then to respond with things like, Jesus, you know what I like about Jesus? He's so nice and interesting. Not the right response. Jesus is... um, I, what I really like about Jesus is how smart and wise he is. Not true, not the right response. Or you hear this quite a bit. You'll hear people who might say something like, Jesus, this is what I love about Jesus, and this is who I believe him to be. He's an authoritative teacher. He's such a gifted teacher. And by the way, when people say, I don't, I don't consider myself a Christian, but I appreciate Jesus' teachings. Have you ever heard Josh McDowell says, well, if you appreciate his teachings, what do you do when you get to the part where he says he's Lord and Messiah? Right? And Josh McDowell says, well, he's either lying about that, or he's either a lunatic claiming to be that, or he's the Lord himself. And so we can't say that Jesus is just a good teacher. He is a good teacher, but then he's so much more. He's Lord and Messiah. And we can't say that Jesus is a powerful prophet. And it reminds me of Muhammad or some other prophet from some other world religion. In other words, all those things are true, except for the last one, right? Jesus is prophetic, but he's not a prophet like Muhammad. But all those things are true, but that's not the point. That's not what we're focusing on. It's also not a proper response. Some people say, I could see why so many people like him. He really did care for so many people. 
So, proper response, the proper response is we repent. We stop trusting ourselves. We stop trusting in our own works. We stop filling our appetites and our longings and our desires with ourself and the stuff that God has given us, and we kind of renounce that and we turn and say, now my trust, my hope, my joy, my peace being made right with God is in Jesus alone. I am turning from myself and my own self-saving, and I'm turning to Jesus who is the only one that satisfies and gratifies, and that's repentance. And then we say all that stuff that God has given us that we become addicted to and that we find comfort in, whatever, it becomes a thing, but it doesn't, be, it doesn't remain the ultimate thing. We enjoy it, but we don't adore it. Instead, we turn to the one who created it. So, um, after that, we receive forgiveness and we receive the Holy Spirit, God Himself, which we already covered, right? Now, isn't it fair to say, doesn't every Spirit-filled church teach this, focus on this? Isn't this, if you go to really any church that considers themselves a Christian church, isn't really any church focusing on preaching and responding to Jesus? And the answer is no. The answer is no. It doesn't take long. If you're browsing around Instagram or you're looking at, I don't know, church YouTube channels or whatever, and it does not take long to discover that there's a lot of things that are focused on at churches that are centering what their main message is, not the least of which I mentioned last week is personal preferences, pet peeves, right? Sometimes the main messaging is um, partisan politics or even divisive doctrines, are the main, um, the main message. Oftentimes, it sounds and feels like us versus them, right? We're the right ones, and everybody else is outside the door, and they're like, we're like Noah and Noah's family in the ark, and they're all perishing. Well, they ought to be perishing. Shame on them. Good for them. They deserve what, they're, what they get, us versus them. Or us versus them where you've got a church saying it's us, and then it's them, the other Christians, who don't interpret the Bible the same way we do. Right? Jesus people who don't interpret all the, all the other non-essential things like we do, and it's us versus them. And then, of course, um, some churches are just hyper-focused on protecting protocols and protecting and advancing tradition that isn't necessarily biblical, but it's something that we've grown comfortable with and it's become a tradition. So, responding to Jesus. Here's the way we respond, and then also treasuring Jesus. Not just repenting and turning from ourselves and turning to, to Jesus, but also treasuring Jesus, discovering this pearl of great treasure, this, 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 um, this person who's so beautiful, this person who is to be cherished so deeply, who is so full of the glory of God in, in expressing His exact image to us that we begin to see that this is my greatest treasure and my joy. He Himself is the supreme source of my deepest satisfaction and my deepest gratification. And for all my longings and for all my uh, desires and for all, for all my appetites, there is one who satisfies me, and it's Jesus. I repented, and then I don't just kind of like leave it at that, I, I also say now I trust and treasure and I delight in Jesus. Now, a modern intellectual here in America might ask a question, a follow-up question here, and they might, it might sound something like this. Aren't there new and more important topics to cover considering, for a church, considering how ancient this book is, how far right we've come and evolved culturally, and how crucial social causes are. That's what we might ask in our culture, in our modern culture now. Well, actually, Peter answers this. Look what Peter says about Jesus. After he's kind of winding down preaching who Jesus is, he says, this promise of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is for you. Who else is it for? Help me out here. Who else is it for? Your children. And to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord, this message is going to go on and on. It's for your children, your children's children. This is the message. This is the main thing when you're thinking about how do we keep the main thing the main thing. And if you listen carefully to modern preachers, you hear these other um, things turn up, and it isn't necessarily focused on preaching Jesus. In fact, it'll be focused on oneself. 
If you listen to modern preaching and you're very careful to tune in, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear the main message coming from a church is how you can reach your fullest potential and finally accomplish your God-given destiny. And the main preaching is about you realizing your potential and getting where you're destined to go. And, of course, a good Christian church says, well, God is going to pitch in and help you get there. But it isn't necessarily about adoring, trusting, repenting, and finding your way um, completely submitted to seeing and savoring who Jesus is. And there's another thing that is easy to perceive, I think, if you're listening for it, and it's called MTD. How many of you have ever heard of, when you think about the church messaging or a culture, the cultural uh, condition, anybody ever heard of MTD by any chance? How about this, moralistic therapeutic deism? Anybody ever heard of that? Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a way in which the culture has transformed the main messaging of a church family, and it has, and it has transformed the messaging to this, that the primary message is now this, moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that mean? God wants you to do and feel good. God wants you to do, He wants you to be good, He wants you to feel good, and He can help you from a distance. Moralistic, therapeutic, deistic, right? So God's there, He's from a distance, but all He wants for you is to do good. All He wants for you is to be good, behave better, come on, get it together, amp it up a little bit, you should be better than this, you're a Christian. Or that God just wants you to feel good. And that's primarily a message. So if you do good, be good, and feel good, God's happy with you. And that is um, something that is prevalent. And if you have ears to hear it and you're tuned in, you can kind of pick that up. So what kind of church will the explosive power of the Holy Spirit baptism generate? What kind of church? It inspires, it creates an awe-inspired community. So, Spirit-filled believers, Jesus-focused preaching, and here in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see an awe-inspired community of people who are gathered together. They are selfless living and giving. We see a people who is love in action, not just love with merely words, as Paul writes later. The nature of the very first church was very vivid and helpful for us. Would you check out this kind of church? Some of you, this is, this is true, and it's probably true for me, some of us might not even go to a church like this because it doesn't have some of the bells and whistles we like. I mean, I think about a church like this, and I'm like, you know what? All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. But was our coffee good? Was the preacher funny? Did it hold my attention? Was it, were the people dressed a certain way? But look at this is what happened when this started to this church started to get ignited early on the very first church these are what the people were doing the believers devoted themselves to teaching fellowship sharing in meals and to and to prayer how does a church get to this level of devotion how does that even happen what's the driving devotion uh, what's driving this devotion that we're seeing in this church and here it is it's a deep sense of awe a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. They were struck with who God is. They were struck with the power of God. They were struck with the glory and the beauty of God. And that inspired devotion. It was not effective um, motivational speaking. It was not leveraging somebody's guilt and shame to get them to do what they ought to be doing. Something special happened and there was a depth in their sense of awe that came over them. The awe of God will inspire even more. The awe of God will inspire, and here's one way you can categorize it, worship and generosity. Giving and receiving. Receiving from God and then giving to people. Receiving from God and giving to people. Worship and generosity. Receiving in and giving out. One of the signs of a church that's thriving and spirit-filled is a church that's receiving from God in worship, is giving out in worship to God, and also is receiving from His people and is giving to, the, to His people. There is a back and forth. There's one of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp, writes, he's got a whole book on awe 
of God. Whole book. I mean, just writes and writes and writes on all that this awe of God means. And here's what he says. It's just a portion of what he says. The awe of God means I live knowing that there's a greater story than my little personal story. Awe of God means that there is a grander kingdom than my little kingdom of one. Awe of God means that God has a plan far bigger and better than any plans I have for myself. What is the far bigger and better plan that God has for me? It's, check this out, this is described what this, our church, any spirit-filled church could be like. And all the believers, right, not congregants, adherents, met together in one place and they shared everything they had. This blows American... This, if you're uh, uh, born and raised here in America and you've got the, you know, you've got the culture in your, in your bones, this, this is mind-boggling. Other countries, it doesn't necessarily, communal countries don't necessarily, um, I don't think it lands quite the same, but they shared everything they had. They sold their property. They sold their possessions. And they shared the money with those who were in need among their community. That's powerful, right? Why would they do that? The awe of God had struck them so deep. They never had to think to themselves, if I give this away, will I get anything in return? Will I have enough? Because their awe of God was so deep and thorough, they knew the more I give away, the more God's going to give me. It was a it was an accurate view of who God was. Generosity was, we're, we're going to be a people who just continues to give out because we know that God's going to continue to help us take in more. Giving up all we want because we were struck with all that we have. And when I'm struck with all that I have, it's not quite difficult to give all that, I, um, all that I can. What does that mean? We have open lives, we have open hearts, we have open hands and open homes. And they immerse themselves in their faith family. They plunge themselves into their church family. They didn't sprinkle themselves with a little bit of church family on occasion. It wasn't a dash of faith family. They were immersed, loving, caring, serving, giving everything that God was to them. So, what else? Here's what else they were doing. They were worshiped together at the temple each day. Met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. This is amazing. By the way, I don't think this is a mistake because Luke, who's an author, is very, very specific. Who was, who were this, was this church enjoying the goodwill of? All the people. That's mind-boggling to me. All the people were, were expressing goodwill to this church, this group of people who were living a new lifestyle. And they had moved from the pleasures of receiving and they had exchanged it for the pleasure of giving. When I read this, I can't help it. I think of us. I think of us. And I think to myself, how do we get there? And then I realize we don't get there any other way than God miraculously working in our hearts to raise the level of awe in our own hearts as to who God is and what He's accomplished. In fact, um, Paul Tripp goes on to say it this way, only when the awe of God rules your heart will you be able to keep the pleasure of the material world in their proper place. That's what comes first. What comes first? When the awe of God rules your heart. So when we're devoted to generosity, when we're devoted to worship, what is the result? What happens uh, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved? Each day, and eventually it was recorded by, uh, by Luke, eventually there were thousands added to this church. They did not have an outreach program. They did not have an evangelism strategy. They did not go to conferences and bring back a new way to approach it. They themselves were filled with awe. They themselves were filled with the Spirit. They themselves were preaching and putting Jesus out on a pedestal to say, look at Jesus and what was happening. God started to add to their fellowship every day those who were saved. And that's the result. That's the product. And this is the true miracle, repenting and baptism the true miracle of Acts chapter 2. And it continues today in every single local church that's moved by the Spirit to gather around the Word, to live in awe of God. So, what do we do now? Real quick, immerse yourself into a church full of Spirit-filled people. Not just into a building, 
that offers services on Sundays and programs during the week. What do we do now? We focus on Jesus as the supreme source of your deepest satisfaction and gratification. For everything that you long for, everything that you desire, and all of your appetites, there is a satisfying solution, and it's Christ alone. Jesus alone. Everyone and everything else will let you down or eventually be built up so high it comes crashing down and crushes you. Lastly, we recognize that it's the awe of God that generates a whole life devotion and generosity and worship. Would you, church family, pray with me? God, help us see you. Help us know you. Help us... um, Deepen our sense of awe. We pray today, God, that if we don't see it now, that you will be at work helping us to see it more clearly tomorrow and the next day. That all that you're doing will be sensed. We pray, God, that our church would get a glimpse of what it could look like if our church is, in fact, filled with awe empowered by your Spirit and devoted to Jesus. It's no mistake. We recognize that reading through Acts chapter 2, it's no mistake that you're rolling things out so clearly. It's no mistake that we're seeing it. It's no mistake that we're listening to this. I pray, God, that you'd help our church advance and move in maturity where our worship is deeper and our generosity goes further. May our hearts be open, our hands be open, our homes be open. For those who are here among us and remain on the sideline or remain in the, in the seats spectating from a distance, God, would you gather them up closely, connect them to the church family, and that you would do it naturally by the power of your Spirit. And we pray for those of us who are engaged, who are motivated in fully devoted, we pray that you'd help us to see the needs and that we would do so because we have a heart just overflowing with worship and joy, gratitude. Father, we thank you for shaping our vision of a thriving church today and we pray that it would be fruitful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Would you stand, church family? We're going to sing together and celebrate who it is that God has made us to be.